Brock Wilson. This week on Football North, we're going to focus in on coaching. The good, the great, the bad, and the ugly. Hey, if you've ever been involved in high-performance sport or even sport at the development level, coaching does matter. You don't just become a great coach overnight. It takes hard work, it takes dedication, and in some cases, it takes a little bit of luck because, let's be honest, great coaches don't always win the championship. Coming up on today's podcast, we're going to check in with the winningest coach in CFL history. We're also going to profile a current coach in the league who's been coaching for almost 30 years. Now, as I mentioned in our very first podcast, I have had the pleasure to deal with so many different coaches in this league, from Jack Gotta to Dave Dickinson. Hey, you can sprinkle in a little bit of Steve Barato, Bud Riley, Larry Kaharick, Wally Buono, Matt Dunnigan, Jim Barker, Tom Higgins, and John Huffnagel. Yeah, so many different personalities in that group. And that is where we're going to start the podcast today. I want to welcome back Kelly Moore, sports director for CGOB in Winnipeg, Dave Campbell, one half of the play-by-play team with the Edmonton Elks. Guys, welcome back to Football North. Hey, great to be back, Jocko. (laughs) Good to talk to you guys. Okay, we're talking coaching on the podcast today. Best coaches you have ever dealt with and why. Dave, you mentioned last week, you know, you've had the pleasure to work with a lot of coaches like myself and and, and a lot recently. So why don't you start? The best coaches you have had to deal with. Yeah, so I'll just start at home here. I mean, I've I've worked with uh, several coaches with the uh, Edmonton organization: Tom Higgins, Danny Machocha, Richie Hall, Cavis Reed, Chris Jones, Jason Moss, Jamie Elizondo, and uh, now we're back with the, well Scott Milanovic. I guess we could slip in there a little bit, uh, <laughs> even though he didn't coach one game, and then now we're back with Chris Jones. But uh, you know, I I would say all of them I've had a pretty good relationship with. Um, I, I, I think the, the best coach I've ever dealt with period is Wally Bono, just because he's authentic. He's real. He doesn't BS you. Well, he BSs you a little bit because every coach <laughs> does. Um, he's willing to spar with you and you have to be willing to spar with him in a, in a, in an interview setting or a news conference setting. Um, but he does it in such a way where, you know, he's not trying to belittle you or make you look like an idiot. He's just doing it on the basis of, I'm trying to take you to the answer. And sometimes the answer isn't as straightforward as you would like it to be. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking over the years here, like Richie Hall was a gem to deal with in, in the two years that I uh, that, that I had a chance to, to cover him uh, in 09 and 10. Uh, Cavis Reed is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um and you know, I I would also uh, I would also throw in uh, Jason Moss in that group as well. You know, and he is fiery. He is uh, you know, the appearance is sometimes he can be difficult, but he's not. I mean, you may not like the answer you get from Jason Moss at times, but he'll give you an answer, and and he's intense as intense can get, but he is authentic and real. And I think I respect that out of out of a coach more than anything. Um, you, you can't be. Uh, saying one thing and then doing another thing. If you're not authentic, you, everyone can see right through that. So, um, yeah, I had the pleasure of working with many, many uh, coaches here in Edmonton and, and admiring some coaches uh, from across the league. But uh, it would be hard 
you'd be hard pressed not to uh, put Wally Bono at the top of the list. Uh, fair, fair enough. You know, you know, it's interesting from my own personal experience. You know, John Huffnagel, when he was the coach of the Calgary Stampeders, I, I, I did a little bit of a coach's show here on Calgary, and I, I tell you what, I found Huff so difficult to work with because he was so guarded. He had that NFL <laughs> mentality. Uh, mentality. He, he just, he just didn't want to share anything, and he was so protective of what was going on. And then I go from Huff to Dave Dickinson, and it's the complete opposite because Dickinson is, is open. He's honest. He's very helpful. He want you. He wants you to learn the game and understand the game, and he understands the connection, you know, with the fans. So it was really interesting for me just going from the different comparisons from from John Huffnagel to Dave Dickinson. I, I will say this though, uh, and he wasn't he wasn't here as a coach for very long. Uh, one of the coaches that I probably learned the most from in the Canadian Football League was Jim Barker. Uh, Jim Barker, you know, really took his time to to basically share his knowledge of the game and he wanted me to become a better broadcaster and and you know would sit down with me and, and talk about the different zones and some of the different plays and and again I, I was more of a hockey guy than a football guy and I really appreciate what Jim Barker did for me just you know teaching me more about the game oh, thanks coach what I'm here for. I, I also find sometimes the head coaches are a little more guarded. I, I really like the, the, the association with some of the assistant coaches. I, I go back to, like, Corey Mace, who's now in Toronto. He, he would really, really try to help me as a broadcaster to get through it. Devon Claybrooks, boy. Um, maybe it's why he didn't work out as a head coach because he probably shared too much information <laughs> you know, to me, to me as, a, as, a, as a media guy, which, uh, you know, I think is, is very, very interesting. So, you know, those are some of my stories. Uh, Mr. Kelly Moore, how about yourself? Well, you know, I, I started off out on the West Coast, so some of my early rem- uh, memories are uh, working uh, at training camps, uh, covering them when Vic Rapp was the head coach of the BC Lions, uh, and then it was Don Matthews, and you know, I wasn't the regular guy on the beat, so you know, it didn't have anywhere near the same relationship that some of the guys who'd been uh, covering the team for years and years or were doing play-by-play had, but it was always fascinating uh, to listen to Don Matthews and mm-hmm. Sometimes when he had an issue with you, it was even better. Uh, and then, uh, you know, kindly Cal Murphy, uh, Dave Ritchie is another guy that was an absolute favorite, although uh, uh, because, of course, I, I worked here with the legendary Bob Irving. So a lot of the times I was dealing with the coaches when Bob wasn't available. He was either traveling or they were into a bye week, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, there, there were a few times where I had to go interview <laughs> Dave Ritchie and holy crows, could he get off on a tangent uh, as you guys well no in radio it's a little different on podcasts we're not as uh, legislated by the clock as we are in radio and Dave could just go on for days uh, here in Winnipeg though there have been some interesting coaches and and you guys know this full well Jeff Reinbold is one of the most amazing and wonderful human beings you will ever meet on this earth. But holy crows I'll tell you that was uh an underwhelming two years uh, when he uh, was the head coach here of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Tim Burke, another man, bless his soul, was just as, as kind a of human being as you'd want to meet. But uh, uh, that was pretty much an unmitigated disaster when he took over from Paul Lapolis. Lapo's another guy that, uh, boy, you talk about teaching you the X's and O's of the game. Uh, Lapo was, uh, was certainly great for that. Uh, and uh, Mike O'Shea. 
has uh, he, he's a lot like John. He's got a lot of John Huffnagel in him, guys. Uh, where you know he's very, very yes. guarded in what he says. I mean, yes, to try he, yes, to get he's... any kind of roster information out of him, uh, it's <laughs> like pulling teeth. But I will say this: <laughs> once once you gain Mike O'Shea's trust, and uh, and and you show, you prove to the man that you've been paying attention and uh, you've been uh, watching the games, and you've come up with uh, some different questions to ask, uh, he can be very engaging. And and for my money, uh, he is the best coach uh, that I have ever worked with in football. And, and and he's right up there uh, in all the sports. Jock, like you, in this in this market, I'm known more of as a hockey guy mm-hmm. uh, than a football guy. Uh, but I have covered the football team a lot. And and Mike O'Shea uh, is just, he is outstanding. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it it's so good for the Canadian Football League to have a guy like that because a he's canadian he's played the game he absolutely loves and reveres the league uh, so uh, I, I think it's great to have a coach that's sitting in the seat like that uh and uh, he is so respected uh within the winnipeg blue bombers organization back in the tough times when everybody was screaming for his head the grace and the class that mike o'shea showed Uh, is a great lesson for us all on how to handle a situation when you're under fire. (laughs) You play the Dave Ritchie card. I will basically (laughs) counter with the Jack Goda card because Jocko (laughs) could talk better than any. I still remember his, uh, his, his final news conference when he went on without even a question for about two, two and a half hours. I was like, I was like, I got a deadline for, for goodness sakes, Jocko. Uh, Boy, you, you talk about somebody who could talk. That guy could talk. Oh, yeah. You know, and another thing about Dave Ritchie, too, I used to do uh, the sidelines for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers during my first tour of duty here in Winnipeg uh, when Dave Ritchie was coaching. And I'm not telling any tales out of class here because everybody could see it, but I'll tell you, Dave Ritchie would have been cooked without having Bob Cameron on the sidelines to you know, set the punt returners and remind him about clock management and that sort of thing. I mean, Dave was a phenomenal coach. Uh, you know, his record speaks for itself. And, and the the love and respect the players had for him uh, do as well. Uh, but, you know, he was an intricate guy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too. And uh, and and you talk about, uh, you know, interesting characters down on the sidelines. I remember when I was doing the sideline reports, and I, I'm not saying Denny Crean was, uh, uh, was a bad coach. All I'm saying is I, I've never heard a guy drop more F-bombs than, than Denny Crean. Like. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have a live. You couldn't have a live mic near Denny Crean, and he was the DC of the Calgary Stampeders. And you know that that's the great thing about the sidelines. And Dave Campbell, I don't know if you've ever done the sidelines, uh, you know, because you've always been up in the booth. But uh, you you do get some great insight from the coaches when you're down in the sidelines. No, yeah, I mean, I did. I did my first two years in 0405. I was on the sidelines, okay. and uh, Danny Machocha was always very interesting to talk to uh, because we used to do the halftime, you know, a little quick you know, Q and a with the code answer, uh, or, uh, yeah, question answer. And then it's either ask another question at your own peril or just let him <laughs> go. So Danny was very much tied in to, to the result of the game. If things were going well, he was engaging when things were not, he would give you one word terse answers or, you know, it'd be like, so what, what's going on today? Not playing well enough. Okay, so what do you have to do defensively? Stop him! I'm like, okay, bye. Um, you know, he was very tied in 
<laughs> to <laughs> to to the score of the game win. And the best coaches, you know, I think when they're dealing with media, um, I think they understand that you know we have a job to do, and you're upset, but you know your job is not to sewer the the interview as well. Not every coach understands that, but the good ones definitely do. Mm. So true. Okay, we, we we've shared some stories about you know great coaches and and, and some of the uh, some of the best coaches we have dealt with. This one might be a little more tricky, but you know the worst coaches that you have had to deal with and why. Uh, Ke- Kelly, why don't you start this time? Well, you know, I I would have to say when you're saying worst coaches, are you talking about personality? Or are you talking <laughs> about uh, you know how they handle their teams? Because you know the aforementioned Jeff Reinbold. I mean, there, there was just, it, it was chaos a lot of the times. Uh, and yet he came in and he just wowed the bomber board uh, with, uh, you know, how he presented himself when he was campaigning for the job. Uh, but uh, I, I would have to say in terms of, because I never worked with a coach uh, that I did not like or that I did not respect that was trying to do the best job that he could. Uh, but I would have to say that at least in the time here in Winnipeg, uh, working in the market, uh, Tim Burke just had a real, real tough go of it. Uh, I never agreed when they uh, let Paul Lapolis go uh, early into the season just after he'd taken the team to the Grey Cup in 2011. And, and Tim Burke was really placed in a no-win situation. Uh, there were some unmitigated disasters. Jock, you might remember uh, the game in Calgary where the Bombers are just getting tattooed and all of a sudden the TV cameras flash to the sidelines. I can't remember the names of the players, but there were a couple of them, you know, chuckling away. So Tim Burke's got to deal with that and, you know, talk about it. Well, it was it was nervous energy. Well, come on, coach. You know, seriously. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to give us something better than that. And then there was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was 52 to nothing or something like that in the late. Labor Day Classic, and of course, you could be having the worst season ever, but as long as, and that's in Saskatchewan or Winnipeg, but as long as you win the Labor Day Classic or the Banjo Bowl, all is forgiven. So you can imagine how that one played out uh, with the Blue. I think it was either 52 to 1 or 52 to nothing. It was just it was just a, a, an absolutely humiliating day. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Tim wanted to go kick a bunch of garbage cans, but tried to be as diplomatic as he could. Uh, so that would probably be the, the one that really stood stands out of my mind for my time here in Winnipeg, which which spans over, you know, started in 94, was here until 2006, and then came back at 11. So I, I, I've had a fair amount of time to, to watch the, the trials and tribulations of the Blue Bombers. You know, worst coaches, you can look at it two different ways. And, and you know, obviously, I think the worst coach, or at least one of the worst coaches in Calgary Stampeder history was Matt Dunnigan. Matt Dunnigan was a great yeah. broadcaster, still a great broadcaster, but, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't like the fact that he just comes in, he gets airlifted into Calgary, and he has no resume. He has, he has no background in coaching. And, you know, you just don't become a great coach by getting airlifted in just because you have a big name. You can be a big star like Wayne Gretzky. It doesn't make you a great coach. And and, and so, you know, I, I think Matt Dunnigan, in my books, is, is one of the, the, the worst coaches in, in Calgary Stampeder history. And, and, and I also have to throw Larry Kaharik into that mix, the, the late Larry Kaharik. You know, Coach Q... I don't know. The players didn't respect him. The players, you know, didn't listen to him. The only good thing about Coach Q was he got fired and Wally Buono became the head coach of the Calgary Stampeders. And I, 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 I've told this story on the air a couple of times, you know. I don't know what I said. I was working rock and roll radio in Calgary. Uh, it was Kick FM. 
And I must have said something on the air because uh, I, I irritated Coach Q. I go down to practice that morning, and he wants to kick the crap out of me, okay? So I, I'm going uh, – Kevin Gallant Kevin was the, the PR director of the Calgary Stampeders. He had to hold Coach Q back, and he finally said, he up to me, said, Jock, uh, you got to leave. I, I don't think you should, uh, you should be here this morning. I, I still don't know what I said to Coach Q to piss him off so much. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I have a history of pissing off coaches for whatever reason. You know, a flame story for you when I was hosting the Calgary Flames broadcast. Brian Sutter was the coach of the Calgary Flames, and I, you know, I, I, I was hosting the pre and post game show, and, and I, I come into the dressing room and I'm talking to the players, and the Flames have had a really, really bad season, and the players are saying, "Jock, uh, we, we got to change coaches. This guy is a disaster. You know, his his message. He doesn't coach us. His message is you got to work harder. You got to work harder. And that's the only message." And so I, I heard this from three or four players, and I'm going, "Okay, this is not a good situation." So I, of course, go on the air. And I start carving a new asshole for, uh, for Brian Sutter, and I'm, I'm saying the Flames have to make a change here. The Flames have to fire this coach, you know, and you may, if you're firing the coach, you may as well get rid of Al Coates at the same time. And I went off on my and, and we were the rights holders, okay? So it, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a sensitive, <laughs> it was a sensitive little topic, you know, by any means. So next day, you know, I'm, 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 I'm man enough about it, about it. So I got to go down to practice, and I got to face uh, Brian Sutter. And so, sure enough, I he's doing a media scrum. As soon as the scrum is over, he says, "You." Wilson, into my into my uh, into my office. I've never been called into the coach's office by myself. And then he calls in Peter Marr as well because I think he was going to kick the crap out of me. So anyway, he <laughs> I get into his office. He goes <laughs> up one side of me. He goes down the other side of me. And you know what? It was all said and done. Like I said, he carved into me for probably 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> and and it was a situation where uh, when it was all over, I said, Daryl. Uh, sorry, not Daryl. It was Brian. I said, Brian. Uh, I. I, I Sorry you feel that way, but this is what I'm hearing from the players. So I just left it at that and uh, and walked out. So long story short, uh, Brian and Al Coates were fired two weeks later. I was fired three weeks later. So go figure. Go figure. You won. You won, Jock. <laughs> By a week. <laughs> oh, those are good times. Uh, oh, so, man. So, Dave, you better uh, you better go next. Okay. Well, you know, uh, kind of on the same lines of uh, as Kelly was talking about, not because the coach was a jerk or rude or anything, but just the way it all played out. Um, I have to put Cavis Reed on that list. You know, yeah. one of the nicest people I ever got to work with and would call him a friend. Uh, but, you know, his 2011 year was great. And then Eric Tillman trades Ricky Ray to the Toronto Argos and one of the worst deals in CFL history. And that didn't help Cavis, but everything just kind of spiraled out of control uh, in 2012. And then in 2013, they they name Ed Hervey, the general manager, and he actually signs a one-year extension, but there was so much drama in that year. You know, Ed wouldn't talk to the media for nine weeks and let his coach, you know, twist in the wind in a nine-game losing streak. And um, But at the same time, Cavis's management of uh, players and coaches and, you know, every every coach and player, I think, would loves Cavis Reed, but when it comes to shin and making things kind of you know, smooth, you know, smooth, uh, or sail smoothly. Cavis had a hard time with that. I'd say for the most part, um, you know, uh, there's one coach I dreaded talking to in the league, just one. There's only one name that comes to mind. And that's Ken Austin. I dreaded talking to Ken Austin in a news conference or in a scrum because he was always so smarmy. He was always feeling like made you feel like you were beneath him uh, he was rude, angry, you know, uh, uh, terse, combative. Mm. Um, it's 
he just he just wasn't a, a pleasurable person to talk to. Um, you know, and I, I kind of had that impression with Mike O'Shea at, at a time, but then, you know, over the years you get to learn a coach, right. And, and, and that, what Kelly says is true is he's, he's so genuine. Um, but here, you know, you Ken Austin could trust you. I don't think Ken Austin trust any media person. I don't know. Like it just feels that way to me. Right. <laughs> and maybe there was a, a few in the media that he liked to deal with, but for the most part, I mean, he was just unenjoyable to talk to because, he was, he felt like he was above you. And I, I can't stand that as a media person, you know, like, obviously I, I don't know as much about the game as you do, but I'm trying to, to find out, right. You know, whether it's information or why certain things happen. And then when you get shut down, because basically the, the, the subject in this case, Ken Austin, doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Um, that's difficult, you know, uh, the fun on the funniest side of things, uh, as far as the worst head coaches, Bart Andrews was funny because in uh, 2009, I remember going to Toronto, uh, we're, you know, it was Brian Hall's last year. Uh, we're covering, uh, the Argos press conference before the, the team played the uh, Edmonton football team. And I'm listening to this guy and I'm going, this guy is phony as phony can be. And he thinks he knows everything about the CFL and he knows really the opposite so that was that was kind of uh amusing um like yeah yeah, okay whatever everything he said it was just like okay it all just hit the floor and there's a big thud and then jeff tedford um (laughs) you hear all the things like oh he actually wanted to have team meetings on game day if you want to if you want to piss your players off (laughs) and he did (laughs) <laughs> guys that are still in the college mindset uh uh it it, it yes. really is difficult <laughs> that way you know it, it, i just i have to tell you guys uh yesterday preparing for this i wrote down a list of the names of coaches uh and again not because of the people but because of the performance and i've almost nailed it for what you guys have talked about i had devon claybrooks larry kaharik matt dunnigan Kavis Reed, Tim Burke, Jeff Reinbold, and the only name that wasn't mentioned off of my list was Jamie Elizondo. You know, it just because last year it seemed so dysfunctional. Now that's not all his fault, uh, no. but holy crows, like that was a that was a tire fire to the nth degree. Guys, fantastic stories. Thanks for sharing those stories. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue to share these stories all season long. You know who's a real pleasure to talk to? Wally Buono, and we'll do that next on Football North. Coaching matters. That is our focus on our CFL North podcast. And who better to break it down for us than the winningest coach in CFL history? He's a Hall of Famer, a four-time coach of the year, a seven-time Grey Cup champion, two as a player, five as a coach. That is a very impressive resume. And, of course, it belongs to Wally Buono. Uh, Wally, uh, that is an impressive resume. Uh, How are you, my friend? Well, I'm good, and... uh... You know, obviously, when you've had success, uh, you have to understand how that success comes. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to be around a lot of great coaches and uh, even greater players. So, you know, that's, uh, as you say, coaching matters, but uh, also the team around you matters uh, 
uh, just as much. You know, it's a great point, and that's where I sort of wanted to start this uh, this interview because you don't just become a great coach overnight. You know, it takes hard work, it takes dedication, maybe a little luck involved as well. Uh, so, so what do you attribute your success to? Well, obviously there's a lot of things, uh, you know, that you have to look at, and everybody has to be their own person. That's the one thing. Uh, I try to always uh, understand about myself is just, you know, be who you are, do what you, what you believe in and uh, what you believe in uh, yesterday is good for today. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, uh, how you're mentored or how you're developed, you know, as a football player, as a football coach has a lot to do with the style you know, of uh, how you're going to operate. And, you know, one of the things that I was always very impressed with when I was playing with the Alouettes was Marv Levy's uh, ability to, you know, challenge men to be men, challenge men to take ownership of their team and challenge men to come out every night uh, when it's game time to uh, play your best for those three hours. And, you know, that's something I totally believed in. And, uh, you know, I felt uh, over my career, uh, you know, that was one thing that I tried to emphasize to both the coaches and to the players, uh, you know, that it's a, a, a joint venture and uh, we both have to be invested in winning. You make a great point because uh, just just because you're a great player or a Hall of Fame player or a great position coach or, you know, a great coordinator, it doesn't always translate into being a head coach. It, it is a fine line at times, isn't it? Oh, no, definitely it is. Uh, you know, the... Um, you know, as they say, you know, it's it's not always fun to be, uh, you know, on top of the heap or on top of the mountain. But, uh, you know, that, that comes with a certain amount of responsibility. And obviously, uh, you have to fulfill your uh, responsibilities when you get to that level. Uh, you know, a head coach has to make tough decisions both on his staff and his players. He has to make tough decisions during the week, during the game. And, uh you know, the better those decisions are, usually the more successful uh, you, you become. When did you know that this was a profession that you would be good at, you know, and, and even have great success at, you know, because, again, that doesn't happen overnight. So so what what triggered it for you? Well, you know, obviously for me, uh, you know, it, it, again, it, it goes back to my playing days with the Alouettes. Okay. We had, you know, some tremendous uh, defensive coordinators that I worked under, Rod Rust, who, coached many, many years in the NFL, uh, uh, Dick Roach, the brother of Mike Roach, uh, who coached us, uh, uh, you know, when I was there with the Alouettes. And, you know, they made uh, uh, playing uh, fun. They made getting information from them fun. And, uh, you know, it was always a challenge every week to see what uh, the coaches were going to come with, what kind of a game plan they were going to have, and then how they were going to allow the players to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, so from there, the cerebral part of football, you know, became fun and it was important to us. And, uh, you know, the Rod Rust, the Mike Roach, those kind of guys, Joe Galat, uh, Lamar Leachman, these are all great names from the past uh, that helped to develop, uh, you know, that love of uh, the knowledge of football. Even getting that first opportunity as a head coach, I, I know you were a coordinator here in Calgary, and you know, and, and I, I remember back to those days because I, I was uh, working at a different radio station at the time, and, and Larry Kaharik had just been uh, relieved of his duties. And if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was it was a two horse race. It was either going to be you or Tom Higgins getting that opportunity, and 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 Normie Kwong went in your direction. 
Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm still uh, beholding to the, the Kwong family, both uh, Norm and Mary. They were good friends of ours. And, uh, you know, obviously, Normie again had to make a decision on what he thought was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, uh, Normie picked myself. But, you know, Tom was also a part of our staff, and mm-hmm. uh, John Huffnagel was, and Jeff Tedford, and, you know, so we were very, very fortunate to have some very good uh, people uh, work with us from the the first day. And, you know, obviously uh, success came because of that. You, you talked about, you know, some of the good you learned from other coaches. And I, I'm sure there's some, some, some takeaways from the bad as well. You, you probably learn both sides, don't you? Well, no, you, you do. And, again, uh, you know, that that's probably no different than... Uh, people who've learned from me. They've learned some good, and obviously they've learned some bad stuff too. But, you know, the thing is, uh, nothing's ever, uh, you know, bad. When you learn, you learn. And, uh, you know, you got to be able to uh, develop yourself into the kind of coach that you want to be. And uh, I think players and coaches respect the fact that, uh, you know, uh, that's who you are. Uh, you know, if you're consistent and if you treat people, uh, you know, with respect, you know, obviously it goes a long way. I look at two of your championships in Calgary. You know, 1992, that was a, that was a talented, talented team. Uh, you know, one of the best teams maybe ever to play in the Canadian Football League. And, and then I look at 2001, where your team was 8-10, and 10, and, and it was not a great regular season. You, you were able to knock off a 14-4 and four team you know, a Winnipeg team that was probably the best team in the league. Do you get more satisfaction as a coach when you win it with a team that's not expected or a team that that's expected? Because they're, they're completely different, aren't they? Well, Dave Ritchie's still mad at me about the four, <laughs> before, but uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's football. And uh, as I told Dave, I'm still mad about 19, uh, I think it was 1994 when the, B- when the BC Lions came into Calgary and beat us uh, in the Western final. So it, it, it's, you know what? Uh, the satisfaction doesn't change from year to year to year, depending on if you have a great team or depending on if you, you squeak in. You know, I think people look at it uh, slightly different, you know, but when you look at the 92 team, we were very, very talented. When you look at the 2001 team, I think the guys just were driven and, and they believed. And, uh, there was a lot that happened in between, but, uh, you know, as I always say, each each championship has a special component to it. And, uh, you know, the 2001, obviously, uh, was the Thomas Ram, uh, Fred Childress. You know, they're the two guys that uh, kind of uh, grabbed everybody by the throat and said, hey, we're not going to, uh, you know, be average. Will us work and be the best we can be? And, you know, we had a, a great run at the end, and, um, you know, we went to Montreal and won a very exciting football game. And, you know, 92 was, again, we had Doug Flutie, Allen Pitts. You know, we had some tremendous, tremendous players, and, you know, everybody expected us to win, and sometimes uh, that's even harder than when you do it by, you know, I don't want to say by chance, but uh, when you do it when it's unexpected. You know, it's interesting when you talk about that 0-1 team and, and, you know, a couple of players in the dressing room, you know, just standing up. And, and that obviously helps a coach because, you know, a coach can only get so much out of their players. You try to get the most out of your, out of your players. Uh, how, do you, how do you get the most out of the players when you, when, you, when you know you're probably not as good as the team that you're playing? Well, again, I, I think what you do is, is 
uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Fred Schurers, the Thomas Ram, the Joe Flemings, you know, th- these are the guys uh, that step up for you. And, uh, you know, uh, football is about sometimes uh, creating matchups, and uh, we did that. Uh, we put our best players uh, at times against, uh, say, a team like Winnipeg's, uh, you know, maybe lesser players. And, uh, you know, we were able to succeed. So, you know, again, I, I think the 2001 team was a tremendous uh, coaching job by the coaches, both the offensive and defensive and special team coaches. And they had a great game plan on, uh, you know, how we were going to go in and attack the teams. And, uh, you know, for the, the, the three games, uh, it worked. And as I always say, we won the 2001 a great cup, but, you know, with illusions. We, we created illusions, and the, the guys did a great job of executing them. Wally, when you're a longtime head coach, whether it's here in Calgary, whether it's in, in Vancouver, you know, obviously throughout the, your tenure, you're going to deal with adversity, you're going to deal with change. you got to keep the message fresh. And, and yes, players do change. You know, uh, the message has to change too, does it not? Well, the message, yes and no. I, I'm going to okay. say no to that to a certain degree. Okay. Uh, you know, from day one uh, in 1990 to my last year of coaching, I think it was in 2018, you know, I always preach that uh, you don't get paid to play football. You get paid to win football. And, uh, you know, uh, football is about winning. It's about, uh, you know, lining up and beating your opponent. And that never changes. Uh, now, how you do that. Uh, what the approach is to get the players ready to do that. Yes, that changes. But the the key message is that uh, you get paid to win football games. There's no football player in the world that just gets paid to play. Uh, as I used to say, I can get guys off the street to come out and play, but I can't get them to help me to win. So, you know, that message never changes. How you deal with the players, how you deal with the coaches, how you deal with the media, the fans, you know, your approach does have to change, even like today with all the, uh, you know, with all the technology, mm-hmm. with all the, you know, the Twitter accounts and the Instagram accounts and this and that. You have to adapt to it because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you lose your audience. To become a great coach, you got to be a great listener, I would think. You're always learning, as you said, you know, with, with, with new technology. Is there any, any other advice you would give for a, for a young coach that's, uh, that's, that's maybe trying to get into the profession? Well, yeah, you obviously have to, you know, one, um, surround yourself with people that uh, complement who you are. Uh, you know, I've always tried to sur- surround myself with people uh, that complemented the, the skill sets that I had because at the end of the day, uh, you know, work uh, with your strengths. Don't, don't try to necessarily always improve your weaknesses. Your weaknesses, you can hire people that can do them better than you and by doing that, uh, you have a balance on your team and that you have everybody working from their strengths. So, you know, it, it's something that you have to uh, look at. Uh, you know, same thing. You have to have a great eye for talent. Uh, we were very, very fortunate in Calgary to have uh, Roy Shivers there for many, many years who brought in some great players, uh, you know, and, and Bob Obilovich. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're the ones that – uh, brought the players in, replaced the veteran players with good young players. And at the end of it, uh, keeping that blood flow going helps you to uh, keep your team uh, strong and active. 
Dave Dickinson here in Calgary always likes to stress family and, and family first, and, and and that's an important element. You know, the, the, these guys are not making a lot of money. Uh, these guys are giving back uh, to the community. Uh, so sometimes you just have to have to be understanding as a coach because you, you you can't push too hard at times, can you? Well, you you know <laughs> you can, but you have to like you say you got to understand what you're dealing with. I think certain things you can push really, really hard on the players, okay. but I think you also have to be compassionate and you have to understand the situation. Uh, players going through a family situation, you have to give them uh, some slack. Players had a rough uh, day about something. You have to understand all that. And, uh, you know, I, I think when you're a player, uh, you may be more compassionate to the players because you've done and you've gone through it yourself. But at the end of it, Jacques, as we all know, you know, when 7 o'clock comes on a Friday night or a Saturday night, uh, those professional players have to forget all of that, put it aside, and go to work for the three hours. And if they don't win, uh, usually there's a lot of unhappy fans. <laughs> Is it like having another child when a guy like Dave Dickinson, uh, you know, who obviously learned a lot under Wally Buono, uh, you know, has so much success in the Canadian Football League? Well, you know what? Uh, we all learn from each other. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you gotta. I mean, you gotta learn from a guy like Dave Dickinson. Not necessarily the, uh, you know, the greatest athlete or the most athletic-looking guy in the world. But yet, when he got onto the field, you know, he was a tremendous, tremendous uh, football player, uh, and he did it with a lot of things. But the one thing you gotta respect. You know, what Dave was his mental uh, toughness, his uh, mental awareness, and, you know, uh, his, his tremendous confidence in himself and the players around him. So, you know, the, Dave's a great example of, of uh, the Canadian Football League. Uh, you can thrive in this league and not be six foot four, 240 pounds, and have a strong arm. So, you know, it's a league of opportunity. A lot of people come here and, and they make a, a great career out of it. I don't know who, who said it as a coach, but I, I, it was a line I heard, you know, reject a premise, get a promise. Uh, did, did you ever ha- have a message like that for your players? Uh, that's way too uh, heavy for me. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, no, my, you know, the, the message I used to have for the players is, uh, you know, is, is like anything uh you know, football is a game played by men. It's, there's a reason it's played by men, and uh, there's a certain standard uh, uh, that's acceptable. And, uh, you know, uh, winning is important because winning solves everybody's problems and stuff, right? So, you know, uh, everybody has uh, isms, I guess. I have them. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you have to be, like as I said, who you are because uh, people respect that. You know, and I respect what you've done as a coach, Wally. And, and in closing, I'm, I'm just going to ask you, you know, I know you've been asked it many times, becoming the winningest coach in CFL history, what did that mean to you? Well, you know what, it means that uh, given an opportunity, whether it was uh, as a player, as an assistant coach, then as a head coach, um, you know, success doesn't come from one individual. Uh, so many variables uh, have to be um, uh, in place, and you have to be able to uh, rely on other people. And this is the hardest thing, I think, about coaching, is that you can do your job, but at the end of the day, as I've always said to 
the players and to the media and to the fans. I've never seen a coach uh, step on the other side of the white line and score a touchdown or make a tackle or, or make a block. You know, those are the players that do that. You have to have confidence uh, in them. You got to put them in the right position and then you got to believe that they can do the job for you. So, you know, a lot of what we do is about all of that, but when it's all said and done, it's about empowering people to go out and do great things for you. Coaching certainly does matter. Uh, Wally, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, again, I'm just so happy to see the CFL uh, playing in 2022. It was great to see the games on the weekend. And it looks like we have a tremendous season ahead of us. Coaching matters for Winnipeg Blue Bombers defensive coordinator Richie Hall. A five-time Grey Cup champion, he's been involved in the CFL since 1983. Heck, he's been coaching in this league for almost 30 years. He's done it all as a coach. He's been a position coach, a coordinator, and a head coach. He's also one of the nicest guys you will ever meet, as we find out in this Football North Profile. Thanks to Calgary Stampeders head coach Dave Dickinson during the 2018 CFL West Final, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers' big three of Wade Miller, Kyle Walters, and Mike O'Shea have become known as the Canadian Mafia. And while that trio does deserve much credit for the back-to-back Grey Cup titles in 2019 and last year, they'd be first in line to share all of that with the supporting cast, which of course includes longtime defensive coordinator Richie Hall, now into his seventh season with the Blue and Gold. The highly respected and extremely likable 61-year-old was born in San Antonio, Texas, but didn't spend a lot of time in his birth city or anywhere else for that matter as a kid. My dad was in the military. He was in the Air Force, so lived around a few different places. Uh, Okinawa, San Antonio, Cheyenne, Wyoming, Maine, and I call Colorado home. That's where he retired at in 74. And after starring as a high school baseball and two-way football player, Hall's next step was to find a university that would take a chance on a 5-foot, 6-inch receiver and returner so he could get his degree. That school turned out to be Colorado State University. Some small schools in Colorado offered me partial right scholarships, and I said that if I was going to stay in the state, then I was going to go to CSU and walk on for football. If I didn't make it in football, walk on for baseball, because baseball um, I really enjoy it. And if I didn't make it in baseball, then I would just be a full-time student and get my degree and uh, get on with life. All was a walk-on with the CSU Rams in 1980 and walked off in 1982 as a conference all-star. Even after achieving that success, Richie still had no pro aspirations until he received a call from north of the border later that spring. You know, my degree was in social work and uh, tried to find a job as a counselor and uh, get on with life. But, you know, it was funny. Uh, I was doing my internship and I got a call from the Calgary Stampeders, Ed Allsman, and they invited me up for a free agent camp. He called me on a Monday and they flew out. They flew me out there that, that evening, tried signing me uh, within the next couple days, and a week later I signed, and kind of been history since. Yes, it has. Maybe it was the successful first campaign that began what has turned out to be a great association. In 1983, Richie was a CFL All-Star and a nominee for Rookie of the Year. A tough-to-play-against defensive back and punt return specialist would play four more years in the Foothill City 
before being traded to Saskatchewan, and little did he know what a big part Regina was going to play in his life. Prior to going to Regina, five years was the maximum place that I have stayed because of my dad moving around a lot. And, uh, you know, I was there from, what, 88 till 2015, you know, or, or till 09 before I went to Edmonton for two years, you know. So um, it's almost like my second home. I always said that I don't want to die in Saskatchewan, but you, you never, you don't know how things are going to work out. You know, like I said, it turned out when I got traded in May of 88, that was the blackest day of my career. But for some reason, I was there for a long time, and, you know, I like to think the people embraced me. I embraced the, the community, and it's been a win-win, and a, a, lot, a lot of fond memories. And none more than Richie's second year with the Rough Riders, his first and only Grey Cup championship as a player, when Dave Ridgway sent the province of Saskatchewan into a frenzy with the game-winning field goal to edge the Hamilton Tiger Cats 43-40 in Toronto. You know, I don't think anything ever replaces that because that was my first one. Uh, just being part of the game. I think, you know, as a coach, it's special, but as a coach, the reality is we're spectators. We're just like fans. It's a player's game. Uh, just to be part of that, to, to, to run out on the field and to host a trophy and knowing that the a lot of hard work, because that's the only time I've ever been a champion. To do it, it was a dream come true. After his fourth season with the Riders, Richie retired from the playing ranks, but stayed in Regina where he put his social major from Colorado State to good use, working with high-risk kids at a Regina high school. But in 1994, the Riders came calling, hiring Hall as a defensive backs coach. Eight years later, promotion to defensive coordinator, including his first Grey Cup championship as a coach in the 2007 23-19 win over the Blue Bombers, again in Toronto. During that time, it became a right of the CFL offseason. Which team would turn Richie Hall down for a head coaching opportunity? Finally, in 2009, after at least seven unsuccessful interviews, the Edmonton Eskimos named Richie Hall their first black head coach in history. He only lasted in that position for two years, and if you're thinking he's bitter, you don't know what makes Richie Hall tick. You know, disappointed, you know, didn't get to go farther, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people and how things work and stuff like that, but uh, never had a dream that I would be a head coach, you know, no different than I never had a dream that I would be a professional athlete. And that's why I sit back and if you were to write a book, you couldn't write a book or have a movie better than what I've lived through. And being a head coach is, it's, it's, it's very intriguing, you know. I guess being a leader, you don't have as much power as you think that you do have. People assume that you can just do this and this and this, but that's not always the case. But a, a great experience. Uh, I like to think that, uh, you know, even that second year, we got off to a slow start, but we went down to the last game of the season to make the playoffs. And now things just came out of the short end. But I like to think that that team played with a lot of heart and played with a lot of character. And I, I like to think that's the way I look at myself. After Edmonton, Saskatchewan welcomed Hall back with open arms. And that four-year stint included the highlight of being part of a third Grey Cup champion in 2013, followed by the disappointment of the following season when head coach Corey Chamberlain decided to demote him as defensive coordinator. It looked like Richie might have to accept the lesser role until Mike Benavides turned down the Blue Bombers' vacancy at defensive coordinator, opening the door for Hall to come to Winnipeg. And Richie Hall says when he looks back at his life in football, he could never have envisioned it would turn out. 
the way it has. I can't because when I went to Colorado State, you know, I experienced a lot of difficulties. You know, I know more than anybody else. I flunked out of school my first semester. Dealing with adversity and dealing with struggles and then being able to flunk out of school your first year and then five years later, you graduate. You know, that was probably the most rewarding thing that I experienced coming out of CSU mm -hmm. is, is I got my degree, you know, when I got knocked down. Because it's one of those things that you get knocked down, but you can get back up. And I believe, uh, and I was instilled in me by my parents that if you work hard, good things are going to happen. You just don't know when they're going to happen. And for me, it happened May of 83 when I got my degree. Coaching really does matter for Richie Hall. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please tell a friend or leave a review. We'll drop another episode for you next week.